Hey, I just wanted to do a quick disclaimer at the top of the episode. Um, this is Lee here. Uh, I had sort of a severe allergic reaction on the day of recording this episode, so I just wanted to apologize for um, any hoarseness, any wheezing that might occur. I did my best to edit that out, uh, but this is a great episode. I think you'll enjoy it, and uh, thanks for listening. Looks like it's Maggie's theme again. We've got Maggie's theme returning, opening an episode. I, I think this is the third instance of uh, you know this song being used as an opener. Yeah, by my counts, it is the third one, uh, according to Maggie Watch 2019. <laughs> what do we got? Uh, Soapy Sanderson and uh, S- Slow Dance, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the one that I had on my count, too. Mm-hmm. So we got that one on account, along with um, Dogs on the Street Watch 2019. I'm always paying attention to that one. How did that? Um, how did that um, investigation unfurl this episode? Were there many dogs on the street. There's definitely a dog on the street in this episode. Yeah, I think there's one. Whenever uh, the Cindy, what? Are, wait, okay. What are we talking about? Uh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> what are we talking about? We're talking about Northern Exposure, the 1990s CBS television series, and this is a Northern Overexposure podcast where we overanalyze it. My name is Charles. My name is Lee. I've seen the show countless times. Charles, this is your first time watching this episode, right? Yeah, this is my first time watching the episode. And I got to say, I'm, I'm going I'm to be really honest. <laughs> I'm going to come out coming out strong, yeah. 315 degrees. And <laughs> got to say, I do not like this episode. All right. Yeah. No, I, I, can, I, can I wager, um, can I take a guess at, at perhaps maybe why this might not be your favorite? I'm pretty sure you're going to be right, but yeah, it's, go for the guess. It's uh, sort of the, sh- it, the 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 primary plot of this episode is Shelly, would you say? The A plot? Uh, mm, actually, I would say that's the B plot. I would say that Joel, mm-hmm. had, Joel and Maggie have the A plot, actually. Um, okay, well, I guess agree- we could we can always agree to disagree. Mm-hmm. The, the episode does start off with Joel and Maggie, but... Um, Shelly, I'm, I'm assuming this is probably why you don't like this episode, because it really hinges, there's a lot of this episode that hinges on Shelly and Hollings' uh, relationship. Oh, yeah. Now that I think about it, maybe you are right. I forgot about the arc that goes through the entire episode involving mm-hmm. not just Shelly, but Holling as well. And when you include those two, yeah, it, it kind of beats out. I would say it probably gets line. more screen time, or at least more page length, you know? We're, mm-hmm. We are constantly cutting back to Joel and Maggie, but... That it feels like a um, a secondary plot, you know. Even though that's how the episode starts, it's kind of like a bit of a trick. Feels like mm-hmm. the A plot because normally you start with the main plot, but no, that's not always true. Yeah, so you are entirely correct. That is why <laughs> that is why I do not like this episode very much. And as I was watching it, it's pretty rare for me to uh, dislike an episode from the beginning and then keep my dislike levels like at the same. <laughs> So uh, it same was frequency. Plateaued. It was like a plateau. Yeah, of you were not happy with the episode. Actually, I lied. I might have gotten more disappointed oh, okay. as the episode kept going. I, I, I you forgot how the episode back. ends, right? <laughs> we're we're, jump, we're definitely jumping around. Yeah. This, but um, I, let me at least say, I, I guess we're kind of talking broadly. We'll get into specifics, of course. We have the whole episode to dive into this, but uh, <laughs> just broadly, I feel like this episode, something like this, should have happened much earlier in 
this series. How, what do I mean? The relationship between Shelley and Holling is always sort of this weird sideline, just something that we accept as like a B-plot, uh, which is very strange and usually, you know, maybe our least favorite elements of an episode is their um, relationship. But I think in this episode, specifically because it is sort of a central focus of the episode, it really does seem to have it maybe figured out. Uh, uh, well, let's get into it. Do you want to just start with um, the, the Shelley and Holling plotline? Yeah. Yeah. Let's go into this plotline. Let's, uh, let's work backwards from here and see if you can find your words to describe this <laughs> yeah. atrocious <laughs> plotline. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this is going to be a fun episode. <laughs> no, so we start let, me just, let me just go on the record real fast and say that. Okay. <laughs> that this is probably my least favorite episode of the season so far. This is not a great episode, you know, that not that good. But I will say, I feel like um, maybe, I don't know. I don't know. Let's, let's just get through it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have some good things to say, I think. Okay. So we're starting off this episode with a new character. Um, definitely a guest character. It's not going to be, from what I can guess, a recurring one. Mm-hmm. But... It's her friend Cindy that we've heard about. Yeah, so we had heard about her, I believe, in Sex, Lies, and Ed's Tape in the first uh, season, right? Is she mentioned as um, basically Shelley's husband, her actual husband, Wayne, comes into town wanting a divorce so that he can marry Cindy, who, if I'm not mistaken, Shelley remembers as uh, being very overweight or, or, or not pretty. Uh, yeah. She, yeah, you're right. She remembers her as being very heavy and not attractive. And so she's, and she's surprised, surprised to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got to say that when we're introduced to Cindy, she looks like pure 2019. Oh, and by yeah? that, I mean that our fashion senses have dialed back to 1990s. <laughs> We've I know, gone when back. I saw Cindy, yeah, I was like, hmm, she's really hip in her clothing. That was like <laughs> something I would see in like a really, <laughs> really hip really neighborhood. Hip neighborhood, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's got platinum blonde hair, you know, very, um, very neon sort of like day glow colors. She's, she's kind of a pretty cool character, actually. I remember not liking this episode so much. But I do like Cindy, I think. Um, let's let's get into it. So Cindy has come to town. She enters the brick looking for... No, what is it? She's looking for Shelly because essentially they need to... They still haven't been divorced, uh, Shelly and Wayne. Yeah, she married Wayne, but it turns out that Wayne was still married to Shelly. So by all accounts, Wayne is... I think Holly said... A bigamist? Bigamist. Like a um like bigamy is whenever you, I guess, are married to more than one or you have two spouses or something. It, that's a funny scene though, right? Because uh how does that come about? So Holling brings Cindy a plate of food and they actually start meeting each other and talking and getting to know each other because that's their first time seeing each other, right? Yeah, or or it's not maybe not their first time meeting, but um it's definitely the first time they could kind of get on the same level. Yeah. And she's trying to explain to Holling what act she committed and Holling says bigamy right what yeah no she, uh, i keep wanting to say bigotry and it's not bigotry uh bigamy yeah bigamy she's yes like well she's like um she describes i think her father as being the sergeant rock type which is uh, apparently it's a reference to a comic book series so just a very militaristic uh man and mm-hmm. her mother she equates to being sort of like practically a holy roller i think is her words yeah a holy roller and she says, you know, they're, she, they're not going to like it when they figure out that I'm married to... Um, when they find out Wayne is a... Whatchamacallit? A bigamist. No, not that. I mean, one of those guys is married to two chicks at the same time. What is the difference between being a bigamist and being a, a polygamist? 
So bigamist, Webster's Dictionary defines... Am I getting married? Bigamy. <laughs> defines bigamy as uh, the act of going through a marriage ceremony while already married to another person. Uh, whereas polygamy would just be meaning, you know, when you have multiple lovers. Oh, wait. Polygamy only references to just lovers and not marriage? Oh, no, 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 no. Sorry. I think I'm simplifying it too much. I think polygamy can mean you have more than one husband or wife at the same time. But bigamy means you're married... Um, like you marry someone even though you're already married. Oh, okay. Whereas polygamy, you might marry all at once or uh, I don't know. It could be any number of things. <laughs> okay. Can I share you with you one of my favorite polygamy jokes? Uh, sure. Yeah, it was a joke from 30 Rock where Jack Donaghy was dating multiple women. He tries to justify it to Liz Lemon by saying, like a silverback gorilla or Mitt Romney's grandfather, I require <laughs> multiple mates. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's well, that's like a Mormon joke, right? Yeah, it's a little Mormon joke, but it hits on both levels of polygamy and Mormonism. Well, okay, so it's in this scene when they have the heart to heart that Holling has a plan for Cindy. His idea is that Cindy and Wayne could get divorced, so that then after that, Shelley will divorce Wayne, and then after that, Cindy can and Wayne can remarry. That just sounds like a terrible, like, what, how does that, how is that even a plan? I, I don't, I don't know. And I don't know if Holling's thinking straight. Is is he just thinking of a way to diffuse the situation? Maybe so. Uh, I guess we haven't even mentioned this yet. So Cindy comes into town and that's really what's kind of sets Shelly off. What is, what's actually happening here? Like, like what's going on with Shelly? I've been trying to figure that out. Oh, uh, I think from my understanding is that with the reemergence of someone from her past, particularly if someone that she went to high school with and was like deep friends with in her childhood, she's bringing back all those old memories of being in high school and having to live up to standards, especially other people's standards. And she describes herself as being, you know, looking like she has it all together, like she's perfect. She's got the quote unquote perfect body. And she is trying to explain to Cindy that it's a lot more harder than it looks uh, trying to appear the way that she appears and that maybe she has problems that other people aren't seeing. So, yeah, I think, well, I think first when Cindy comes into town, it appears as if Shelly is maybe jealous. Um, Howling even says that Shelly's very defensive with other men or very, like, she's very possessive of other men. And so when I first was watching this episode, it gave me the sense that Shelly had some sort of jealousy and felt that now Cindy is hot and she's sort of like the more popular one because Shelly now is living in, you know, middle of nowhere, Alaska. Cindy mm -hmm. is going to all the hockey games with all the boys. But I think by the end of the episode, what you're talking about is sort of their coming to terms moment when Shelly reveals that, uh, what does she say? With perfection comes responsibility. You know, throw it back to Spider-Man. <laughs> with great power comes great responsibility. But kind of what you were saying, you know, being the most popular person is sometimes, uh, it's more of a struggle than you realize. You know, you somehow you set yourself to live up to other people's standards. And so maybe that's actually really what is going on with Shelly. Like she's remembering, you're saying she's kind of remembering these these feelings or? Yeah, like she remembers what it was like to be in high school and being 16 years old and getting drunk and trying to appease to all the boys. Like I, I get what the writers are trying to explain, but I just don't care. Like I, it, it just... I can see where you're coming from, but I tried really hard to try to really analyze like what might be going on mm -hmm. with Shelly. And what's kind of like a question that keeps getting raised in my mind as I'm watching this episode and, and kind of what Holling brings up in the last scene is, 
does Shelly miss being the popular one? And according to this sort of heart to heart that she has with Cindy, you know, she, she remembers it as being such a heavy burden, you know? So I think at the end of the episode, she resolves to staying in Sicily. Like she would prefer to be with Hauling than to go dancing. What does she say? Like being popular isn't just uh, beer and roses, you know? She's kind of over all that. Yeah. Well, I guess that if we overanalyzed it right here, she doesn't want to be young with her old friends. She wants to be young with Hauling, hence the mm. ending words of the episode. We'll get there in a second because we kind of skipped over. Uh, oh, yeah, we skipped the middle. Yeah, we kind of skipped a big a big important scene with Hauling and, and, and Shelly. There's a lot going on here, actually. Yeah, it's almost as if there's two plot lines, one that's just involved with Shelly in her inner monologue and what's going on with Hauling. Mm-hmm. And they may share the same subject matter, but they're uh, they're differing in that Holly gets concerned with something much more different than what Shelley's concerned with. Well, they each have their own discoveries. And what's beautiful about it is, you know, that's their relationship brings it together in the end. You know, it's a, it's a good relationship, I guess. Yeah. And so there is that scene where Holling comes, I think it's to K-Bear, and um, kind of outright asks Chris, you know, what, what do you think about the age difference between himself and Shelley? You know, Chris, Chris seems to like have no problem with it. And, I believe Hauling like kind of presses even further. Like he says, "Doesn't don't you think this is um, maybe a bit unseemly?" Yeah, he describes it as a May December romance. Yeah, have you I ever heard of that before? I hadn't, and, and I, I had to look that up. But um, yeah, so I had to look it up myself. And a May December romance is when someone is in their May or spring of life slash youth, mm. and they're romantically involved with someone in their December or winter of life slash old age. So that's yeah, that's perfectly applicable to the situation. Yeah, they they are they are you know by definition the the May December romance. Um, mm-hmm. And I like Chris's response to Hauling suggesting that his relationship with Shelley is unseemly. Chris says personally, I don't believe in chronological age, Hauling. For one thing, for another, Shelley could have an old soul and you could have a young soul. In fact, she could be much older than you. You know, history is crawling with May-December romances. That's what uh, you were saying. And so it, it really seems that Chris makes sort of the best case for, you know, how age doesn't factor into love, how age differences should not factor into a romantic, a loving relationship. But I think the show is still smart enough not to offer any, like, hard and fast answer or solution to this problem because essentially even after Chris um, sort of gives his whole sermon on age differences in, in romance, he, he finishes by offering, you know, history's famous cases of the May-December romances. And what the last one is, Jerry Lee Lewis, who married his 13-year-old cousin. And that's sort of the ending of the scene. And clearly, that's sort of unsettling to Hauling. So while the show sort of does, in a way, defend and bolster Hauling and Shelley's relationship, it doesn't forget that that's kind of messed up. For instance, Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah. Actually, Jerry was the one I had the least amount of problems. I go, well, I guess the second least amount of problems with, he references uh, Strom Thurmond. Do oh, you, no. Do you know who that, that man is? Strom Thurmond was a senator from South Carolina and he was a Democrat initially, but then he flip flopped to being a Republican. And hmm. Strom Thurmond was a man who met his first wife at a beauty contest for Miss South Carolina. He was 44 and she was a senior at Winthrop College, which isn't like terrible, 
But I'm not, hang on now. <laughs> she later died in life from uh, cancer. And then he met his second wife while she was 22. And she was also trying to be Miss South Carolina. And he was 66. Oh, gosh. And that's not all. Strom is a terrible man, and he should never be used <laughs> as a positive reference. Well, like, no. I was surprised that Chris even well, referenced him. No, here's what I think is the beauty of that scene is because it seems very positive and supportive. But the ending, the final note is, uh, I, I don't think it's um, I don't think it's a defense. I think it's an argument against uh, May December romances. Strom Thurmond, Jerry Lee Lewis, like clearly what Chris has just told Holling uh, doesn't make Holling feel better. You know, it uh, starts off well. And then the show, I think, is smart enough not to fall into that <laughs> trap because they can't defend. You know, they're not trying to defend that, but they are. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. Oh, I should preface. I don't think <laughs> that Strom is a terrible man because of his romantic decisions. He's a terrible man because he wrote his the Southern Manifesto. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That disagreed with the Brown v. Board of Education yeah, how it came about for desegregation. He was totally against it. And he also had the longest filibuster in 1957 for the Civil Rights Act. He was against it. <laughs> he, he went on for 24 hours and 18 minutes. It is the longest U.S. filibuster to date. Ugh. He was so against people of different colors being together that he did not go to the bathroom or sit down for 24 hours. I mean, yeah, obviously... <laughs> a lot of political mistakes there. Uh, but I mean, I'm not going to give him a pass for his, you know, seeking out the, what is it? The, the beauty pageant women who are like scores and scores of years younger than him. <laughs> I don't know. It's something. Yeah. I, I just have strong feelings about Strom. I like, I knew about him <laughs> from before and I was like, I can't believe you would even use him. like in any context, the worst part is that, uh, he never renounced his positions and he lived to a hundred years old. Oh God. Like, Ah, oh, gosh. Let's get off Strom. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Let, let's get off this guy. <laughs> so Chris is uh, going to perform a divorce. I think we can, like, that scene is a pretty short one. Basically, Shelly and Cindy go to Chris. And because Chris is the person who, you know, was going to marry uh, Shelly and Holling, he could be the same person to divorce Wayne and, and Shelly. Yeah. It surprised me that he actually had Wayne on the air with them. Yeah, that was really cool. So the way it's set out is uh, they're all gathered in K-Bear. I guess Maurice is there as maybe a witness. Is that what he's there for? I didn't, I didn't know, actually. <laughs> I, didn't, I totally didn't understand out. why he was there. Yeah, Holling's he was, he, there. He was well dressed too. He was yeah. in a suit. <laughs> Holling's there, Shelly's there, and Wayne is uh, on the radio. And I guess apparently a lot of uh, Cindy and Shelly's friends and family are also listening in because... Uh, at times they're called on and they cheer or they say, hey, you know, stuff yeah, like that yeah. over the airwaves. And, um, yeah, let's see what happens in this divorce scene. Chris quotes uh, Swami Bodhidharma and he says, uh, you can't really have a thing until you let it go, which is essentially what Holling does in the very last scene. You know, um, I, I know we're kind of jumping around, but that's when Holling um, asks Shelley if, if she wouldn't rather be, if she wouldn't rather be somewhere else besides Sicily. You know, if she wants to go back and be with her friends and, and sort of her younger friends. Um, so what he's essentially doing is like, if, if you love something, you have to let it free, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, obviously Holling was listening to the, to the sermon uh, during this divorce ceremony. I think Maurice gives Chris the stink eye whenever he says that line. The way the scene <laughs> is shot is there's, it's mostly takes place in a wide shot with all the characters on screen, but it'll cut into close-ups for reactions here and there. And yeah, Maurice is... Uh, what else does Chris say, says something and Maurice has to cut him off? 
to say that uh, the opinions of this DJ are not the opinions of the Owner radio of station. The station. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember what he says? Or I think it has, or just something to do with how like marriage, you know, the the sanctity of marriage, because they're yeah, da- they're talking about line. divorce a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was basically some new age hippie stuff that Maurice was not down with. <laughs> and yeah, I think it's, you know, what else can we say about this scene? Uh, the divorce is effective. Yes. I, uh, if anything, I'll give credit to this episode that there's actually some concrete changes. Because a lot of times in television mm-hmm. series, it reverts back to the status quo. And on this one, something solid actually happened. Shelley finally divorces Wayne legally. Like not just, you know, spiritually. Yeah. <laughs> well, technically Chris Chris brings this up. Chris isn't a lawyer, so he's like, I can't really divorce you. But they convince him somehow. He's like, Yeah, sure, I'll divorce you. It sounds good. Actually, you bring up a really good point. Is this even legal? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's Alaska, it's Sicily, you know. Anything. Oh, right. goes there's out no there. there's no police officers in there in a way. <laughs> there's no rule of law. <laughs> yeah, it's they they seem to make their own rules. All right. Well, um, the final scene here, we've kind of talked about it a little bit already with Hauling talking to Shelley about uh, leaving Sicily and doing her own thing. Well, what is the line? Something like uh, Hauling says, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't want to make you feel old. And Shelley's response is, don't sweat it, babe. From now on, I'm making you young. And she like gets on top of him and starts kissing him. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's always hard for us to... Um, swallow that pill? <laughs> yeah, to swallow that pill of this May-December romance, which is, I guess, how we can term it from now on. But I think yeah. this episode comes close to what the tr- show is trying to say. I think it should have said this much sooner. Basically, the Chris's defense, I don't believe in chronological age, you know, stuff like that. I agree. I think that this should have been done in season one at the latest season two. We got into season three and we're still discussing the problematic issue between their age, which is, I, I don't know how that wasn't, the first thing that they thought of, I like think, how is Holling now just coming to that conclusion? I feel like maybe, I mean, maybe I'm just not giving them enough credit, but Holling and Shelley's relationship is played for jokes a lot. I mean, this show is very much a comedy in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of comedy to be had from a relationship of such distinct, different uh, age, you know, age ranges. But um, I, I like to think that at least with this episode, the show is starting to take their relationship a little more seriously uh, and, and trying to offer, you know, they, they actually really love each other. We see that, I guess, throughout. Oh, okay. Then, yeah, you're bringing up a really great insight into that because if they're trying to take this relationship really seriously, then then you have to look at the biggest elephant in the room, which is their age, which they're finally confronting. So if your theory is true, is that the show wants to, to be less of a comedy in terms of Holling and Schelling's relationship, then this is a good stepping stone for them. Yeah, they're working their way towards that, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So that's a really good point that you bring up right there. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's what's going on. But... I guess before we leave this, I, I wanted to say a few more things about Cindy. She's a pretty cool character. Yeah. She's, what, what is she? She, she went to college and uh, majored in hair and minored in base application. So she's sort of a beautician, hairstylist, and literally in any scene when she has the chance, she makes a remark on someone's hair, offers a suggestion. There's a really cool scene in Ruthann's store where she's like trying to imagine what Ruthann's hair could be like. And uh, Ed is there checking out some movies. Did you see the movies that he's uh, 
picked for rental? Uh, no. What were they? So he's got, uh, I think the first thing he picks up is a tape of Harry and the Hendersons. You know, that like nice. Bigfoot movie. <laughs> and uh, then he also has Hamlet, um, which I guess that must have been Kenneth Browning's Hamlet. Let me see. When mm. did that come out? Which one was it? <laughs> That's what I was going to ask. There's it could be like um, five different films on Hamlet. The Mel Gibson Hamlet, because it's 1990. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> Mel Gibson the Hamlet? Sorry, you like legit did a spit take. <laughs> I didn't know Mel Gibson would do Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I think it's got to be the... <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Six point seven out of ten, according to IMDb. If you if you believe that counts for anything, um, I, I think it might have been that one. It certainly would have been the most topical because that came out in nineteen ninety. Um, there's the Lawrence Olivier, which probably would have been a better choice. Nineteen forty eight. I will say that the cassette box uh, that the tape is in is purple. All right. Uh, it's it's very hard to say, but I think the Lawrence Olivier one. The poster seems to feature more purple, which is kind of what the uh, tape box looked like in Ruth Ann's store. Um, but yeah, there's some cool scenes with Cindy going around town and she's doing Marilyn's nails in one scene. Oh, actually, right after that scene, Shelly like rushes in and demands to speak with Cindy. They go into the girl's bathroom and sort of start to hash it out. <laughs> it's really funny because they get quiet for a second and you hear Holling's voice. He's like, uh, Hello? And at first I thought he was like in the stall, in the toilet stall. <laughs> yeah, me too. I, I seriously thought that. I was like, did they accidentally walk into the men's room? <laughs> they totally missed that that opportunity for a joke. But uh, uh, yeah, no, Holling was outside the door, I think. You know, I just realized something. Um, Cindy is a character who is a beautician, which is literally involved with beauty, like makeup, nails, hair. And she's really kind about it. She goes around town offering yeah. advice to all the townspeople. Super folks. helpful. Mm-hmm. And Shelly is having insecurities about her looks. Not that she thinks that she's ugly, but that she always wants to be pretty enough for everyone. She wants to be the center of attention. So it's kind of a big coincidence that her best friend is someone that is involved with beauty and Shelly is having this crisis in beauty. Yet throughout the episode, I don't think that Cindy offers any like makeover tips for her. Yeah, I think it's I think it's that scene when Shelly and Cindy are on the bed and it's that scene when Shelly is talking about how being popular is actually a huge burden. That's the scene when they really have their heart to heart together. And that's kind of the only scene when Cindy does apply makeup or I think she's doing Shelly's hair. So Cindy's using her beautician skills with her best friend, Shelly. I, I don't think they'd have a scene like that again in the episode. However, as we already said, Cindy does Ruthann's hair. That's a really fun scene. I, I guess they're in the barbershop or where are they? Yeah, it's a, that is the barbershop. And previously we had seen the barbershop whenever Maggie is getting her hair done. Yeah, thought it and Joel familiar. tries to invite her out to the, like the, the dance. Powwow? I forgot about the, yeah, the powwow. That's it. <laughs> Hi, just a quick punch and edit. I wanted to set the record straight. We are talking about uh, the episode in the first season called Sex, Lies, and Ed's Tape. That episode includes a scene uh, where Joel approaches Maggie in a barbershop and invites her to a powwow. That barbershop makes a return appearance in this episode. Yeah, so that's the last time that we saw the barbershop, and I'm glad that you reused a set for it. Yeah. 
because it's the same exact one. So I was like, oh, that's kind of neat. They didn't rebuild it or anything like I that. I forget how it comes up, but, um, you know, everyone, it's it's kind of funny because everyone's standing outside the store and they're like, oh, hey, come come by. Like, Cindy's doing Ruthann's hair. And, and it's sort of like a spectacle, but it's also like a class because Cindy is like kind of teaching them as she's doing it. I, she may oh, be yeah, making up true. words for, for the different techniques, but, you know, she's a pro. And I think it's really funny. She says something like how she started carving um, the heads of the hockey players on the hockey team. And, oh, yeah. and Ruth Ann's like, you carved their head? And um, Ed has to lean in and, and say, like, what, he terms it razor rote. Razor writing? Yeah, razor writing. So she's like using a, a trimmer to uh, write different words and sayings on their in their hair. Presumably they're like expletives or right. something that's just not okay to be seen in public. She says something about how the censors had to like check check each of their heads because she started getting really, um, I guess, explicit with what she was writing with the razor. Well, hockey players wear helmets, don't they? Yeah, I guess they must take them off at some point, you know, if they're like sitting on the hmm. sidelines and if someone sees them okay. or if a camera gets a shot of them, you know. And I guess the only last thing I want to touch on with Cindy and, and this storyline is uh, there's a piece of music that they feature a lot. It's Love is a Hard Game to Play by Stevie Nicks. It's what plays out the episode. It's what plays when Cindy is um, leaving Sicily. Uh, that That's a scene when we see a dog crossing the road, right? Dog Watch 2019. Oh, wait, really? I think so. I think there's oh, a dog. Oh, shoot. I didn't catch that. I got to add that to the Dog Watch. <laughs> My Dog Watch was right after the barbershop scene. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, there's a white dog that uh, walks past the barbershop. <laughs> that's amazing. What else happens in this episode? We definitely have Joel and Maggie. Is that really the only um, plot lines going on? Pretty much because Holling and Shelley's intersect so yeah. much, they almost become one plot line. You're, you're right because Holling and Shelley's are very different. They kind of split apart and come back together at different points. Yeah, so we can return back to, to Maggie's the original, theme. Yeah. yeah, Maggie's theme. It's funny that we started our episode with that and then just avoided <laughs> it. So... We get a plane crash to start off the episode. Yeah. So, well, before that, um, we were kind of talking about this. The the exposition here is is Joel and Maggie are returning from, gosh, I can't remember where, but Joel just did 150 vaccinations. And the town that he was visiting, uh, to show their appreciation, gave him something like 50 pounds of whale blubber. Wait, they gave him 50 pounds? Yeah, that's what he says in the, uh, in the opening. That, like, affects the plane's... <laughs> I mean, she, like well, she's ability. got, she's probably, she's a mail carrier, so she probably carries a lot of stuff, you know? Uh, that's true. Yeah. And then, yeah, pretty, pretty shortly after that, it seems like they hit some turbulence. Fleischman is freaking out and uh, what they're, they're starting to lose altitude. Yeah. So they actually crash in the middle of nowhere from what I can tell. They're two to three days away from the nearest town. Right. She, um, Maggie says they're at the Anactivic Preserve and she says it's 4.2 million acres of genuine wilderness. I searched the term Anactivic Preserve. There is a small town called Anactivic Pass. I hope I'm saying that right. But um, yeah, I don't know. I'm sure there's vast wilderness in Alaska. Yeah, that I can believe. (laughs) (laughs) So they're pretty much just marooned. Yeah. Oh, wait. If we think about it that way. Um, So before we we get to them on the land, let me just say a couple things about when they're descending, when they're crashing. Oh, yeah. Joel brings up Logan Airport, 1973. I guess from the context of the conversation, this is a plane crash that was caused by hitting a flock of birds. I believe uh, Maggie seems to know all about it. She says it's a, a flock of starlings. This is Delta Airlines Flight 723. So actually, this... According to Wikipedia, there's no, there's not really thinking about this being like birds. Hmm. Is Maggie wrong? 
Actually, I did. Fi- I did find out that it's called a bird strike. Uh, whenever a bird strike. Whenever there's a collision between an airborne animal and <laughs> you know an airplane, it's called a bird strike. But no, um, this this was uh, Delta Airlines Flight 723. This was one of the, I guess, most infamous uh, plane crashes. I think they got the number right in the episode. It was something like over 80 people died in the plane crash. What was the actual cause then? So there's a, <laughs> so there's like a, a paragraph that I can, let me just start reading it to you. And maybe you can help me understand it. Okay. The board determined the following probable cause for the accident. It actually begins with an ellipsis, so dot, dot, dot. The failure of the flight crew to monitor altitude and to recognize passage of the aircraft through the approach destination height, sorry, approach decision height, during an unstabilized precision approach conducted in rapidly changing meteorological conditions. That's the first sentence. So, are you following me here? Yeah, it sounds like... (laughs) The humans are messing up and not the machine. I think, yeah, I think in layman's terms, I, I, I don't really understand that sentence, but I think in layman's terms, um, there was sort of a miscommunication with um, the flight controller and the flight crew, and they were out of time during their descent and sort of made some some perilous mistakes, unfortunately. Anyway. Hmm, okay. So human errors and not to be blamed on birds then. Yeah, I don't know how, how common that is, but... Uh, Certainly it's on Joel's mind. He He's also in the scene, he's like praying to God. He's saying like he promises he'll never shave another stroke off of his golf game again if he will just survive this, you know, crash landing. And <laughs> I thought that was interesting because I always thought shave a stroke off your golf game. I thought that meant when you shave a stroke off, that means like you get better, like you're getting better at your golf game. But I think the term is also used for if you're cheating. Like if you pretend like, Let's say you shot this hole in three hits instead of five or something. You're shaving off a stroke. Mm, Have you heard that term before? Shave a stroke? Absolutely not. I know nothing about sports. Same. (laughs) I feel bad. This is not a sports podcast. Yeah, I identify with Joel. My belief in God goes incredibly (laughs) high whenever I feel turbulence on planes. I really, really start believing, start to pray to all deities to get me out of the situation. It's like that scene in The Mummy with uh, Benny when he's like grabbing all of his his necklaces, the pendants of like all the different religions. Oh, that's a great scene. Yeah, it's a great movie. I know, seriously. Uh. Let's get back to, I kind of uh, backpedaled us a little bit. So they successfully land. I don't actually, we don't even see the landing. You know, we just see them get out of the plane. And I think it's pretty immediately Maggie begins to check on the plane's engine. Uh, There are a couple shots when Maggie turns around, like she's working on the plane's engine, then she turns around to deliver a line to Fleischman. And when she turns around, you can see very clearly in uh, the reflection of her aviator sunglasses, you can see the entire film crew in like a mirror board (laughs) in her glasses, like... (laughs) And what's even more funny is this is the shot that they choose to put the title card of the director on. So it says, directed by Miles Watkins on it. <laughs> it's like, so the editor definitely just wants to call out. It's like, this is who's responsible for this mistake. You can clearly see you know, the behind the scenes. Oh, my God. That reminds me of something that Nathan Fielder did, the guy yeah. from Nathan For You. Uh-huh. Yeah, he, he was on Conan oh, a couple yeah. years ago, yeah. and he was he was banned from Instagram because they deemed the photos that he uploaded to be very lewd or inappropriate, and he was trying to defend his decisions, and what the photos were were like, 
it would be him eating a salad and he'd have like a knife up and he'd say like, oh, I'm eating healthy. And in the reflection of the mirror uh, in the knife, <laughs> in the both. knife, sorry, in the reflection <laughs> of the knife would be uh hardcore male pornography. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> and he just couldn't understand. I like, I don't know why they're banning me. I'm just eating a salad right here. <laughs> and there's like a series of photos. It gets, it gets yeah. more and more obvious. Like you can see the mirror, the reflective surfaces get larger I think one's like he's in his car and the rear, the view, rear view mirror, mirror. has it right there. But what's funny is like what is in your back seat that's um that's displaying these pornographic images? Like why is that in your car? I know that's the best part. <laughs> that's all I can think of when you were telling me. Like that. when he's eating a salad, he's sitting by his laptop and you can see like the reflection of the uh of the laptop in the knife. But his car, it's like, what's going on? Like where I don't know. The the circumstances get more and more ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but the show, you know, always keeps its levity. We we get very quickly after Joel and Maggie are stranded. Again, this is the beginning of the episode. We cut to a scene in the brick with Hauling and Ed. And I think they're listening to the radio or they're just talking about it. They seem to already know that Maggie and Joel are stranded out there, that we don't have to worry about them. There's like an expedition of people who are going to look for them. As Maggie said, it could take two or three days, but we really don't have to worry. They're going to just be... Camping, you know, for a couple of days. This this episode is kind of front loaded with exposition. You know, we already talked about the vaccinations and stuff at the very first scene. Uh, in this scene in the brick, Hauling reminds us that he doesn't hunt anymore. Uh, though he does say the Anactivic Preserve is excellent goat country. So yeah, I was wondering about that. Does that mean that he's hunting goat or he's has goats on his farmland? Like, I, yeah. I didn't understand that. Well, I don't know. We don't see any goats uh, when Maggie and Joel are out there. In fact, do we see any animals when they're out there? Well, we see the squirrel. Oh, yes. They eat, um, Maggie, I guess, hunts a squirrel and they're roasting it. So we see a um, squirrel meat. So Maggie and Joel are stranded and we're back to some classic Maggie and Joel bickering. Yeah. Let's see. What, ha- what happens first? I have written down in my notes... Joel is just starving. Like he's looking for something to eat and he's like going through his uh, medical kit. What do we call that? We talked about this in one of the previous episodes, like the house call bag. Yeah. Doctor's kit. Medicine bag, maybe. (laughs) Anyway, he's like searching through that for some Tic Tacs, which is really funny. I think that that has, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's actually really interesting. So it's, it's advertised as having uh, zero calories or not, not zero calories, but zero uh, sugar. Well, in fact, there's approximately almost like two calories per mint. There is a lot of sugar, you know, in this Tic Tac. The The thing is like each Tic Tac is so small that it contains less than 0.5 grams of sugar. Uh, but I think, I think the weight of a single Tic Tac is 0.49 grams. So it's like just below 0.5 grams of sugar. And according to the FDA, like it permits you to list your sugar as having zero grams if it's less than 0.5. Does that make sense? Mm, that sounds like some slick bureaucratic nonsense right there. So it's, <laughs> in fact, it's not zero sugar. It's all, it's just entirely sugar. Yeah. I never understood that. I, whenever I saw the packaging, to be honest, I thought that <laughs> science had just made advances and that we were able to create some sort of Coca-Cola zero Tic Tac. <laughs> yeah. Some sort of strange product like that. But upon hearing that, that's no, they just did it the easy way and just lied. Yeah, so all he has to eat is uh, 50 pounds of well blubber, which later in the episode, Maggie says is healthy for you, but it turns out that 
in 2019 standards, well, well, there is totally not good for you because Blubber watch 2019. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, blubber is found to be damaging to your nervous immune and reproductive systems. And the reason why is because they contain <laughs> man-made. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds terrible. <laughs> well, okay. the reason why it's bad now in 2019 is because mm. they contain man-made polychlorinated biphenyl, which literally comes from whales consuming large amounts of industrial pollutants. Mm. So, Presumably, when the episode was airing, it was maybe, at least a little health, more healthy. Yeah, but now it's totally bad for you. Yeah, it's incredibly terrible, and it's really sad that it's even happening in the first place. But yeah, yeah uh, we don't encourage you to eat well blubber. Yeah, now if you're listening to the pod, Maggie deems it uh, walrus sushi, or is that what Joel says? That's what Joel says, I think. And then he says it's like schmaltz, you know, ch- chicken fat, uh, but he calls it Jewish mayo. I typed that into Google and that does not come up. Like if you just type in Jewish mayo. Yeah. I've never heard of that term Jewish mayo, but I like it. It's funny. He says, you know, Jewish mayo, you spread it on bread. And by the time you're 50, you die of like a heart attack. <laughs> yeah. That was a funny line right there. Uh, he also calls Maggie the Captain Bly of the Yukon. Yeah. What is that? Who's Captain Bly? Yeah. So Captain William Bly was an English captain and he was in charge of the bounty and the mission of the ship was to deliver breadfruit from Tahiti to the Caribbean. But during the voyage, the crew actually mutinied against him. They cast him out with like, I want to say a couple crew members. It wasn't a whole lot. And a boat, I think they gave him like a sword or something to defend himself and a week's worth of food. And Captain William Bly was able to successfully navigate 3,618 miles to Indonesia. And wow. he made it out. He wrote a book about it. Jeez, that's incredible. Okay, well, yeah, that's, you know, sort of a backhanded compliment maybe. You know, he's like trying, he's just making fun of her, I guess, but. Yeah, well, I thought maybe they meant to have that line because when you get mutinied, you usually end up marooned (laughs) on an island. And in this sense, they're marooned in, not because they're on, you know, like land surrounded by water, Mm -hmm. but they have no civilization to be in. So I thought maybe that's what they were referencing but yeah, maybe I'll a little bit too of, deep into it. No, it's sort of a connection there. Yeah. Well, what's the rest of this laundry list of like the food that Joel eats and, and refuses to eat? He, I find it kind of uncharacteristic uh, that he's dumb enough to just like go around and eat berries that he found. Like he's eating these red, <laughs> he calls them red blueberries too. Yeah. It turns out he's eating Bane berries, which I had never heard of. I had to Google that. I don't know if that's very common in the North, but we definitely don't have that in the South. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Well, apparently, uh, from what I can find online, baneberries aren't... Uh, I mean, they can be fatally toxic uh, to children is usually what the reports I've found. But, and in the episode, Maggie lets on that if Joel ate a bunch of them, he would be dead in like four minutes. But I don't think it would have a strong effect if he ate a few. I don't know. Mm. And I agree with you. It definitely seems uncharacteristic for Joel to just be wandering around the forest and eat whatever yeah, he knows better than reach. that. <laughs> Yeah, they really teach you that in medical school. <laughs> yeah, like don't eat stuff in the wild. I don't think they teach you that in medical school. <laughs> I don't know. He, he, I think just think he would be a little more cautious. But so Joel has this whole obsession and and um, uh, phobia of wild animals. I guess specifically bears or moose uh, attacking him. Maggie uh, often leaves. I think she leaves more than once. I think twice. She leaves to go on a hunt. Uh, when she does, she she leaves Joel a pistol to defend himself and a whistle to blow if uh, 
if he sees something scary. <laughs> yeah, so Joel's afraid of wolves coming to attack him, according to yeah. some sort of Russian novel. And I tried <laughs> finding that novel, but I couldn't I, I, I couldn't identify it. What did he say it was? He said that it's um, wolves that attack newlywed parties. Mm. Oh, yeah. But yeah, it yeah. turns out that that actually did happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in 1911, 118 people died to wolves at a bridal party after riding in sleds, which Where? is specifically what uh, in St. Petersburg oh. in Russia. And that's specifically what Joel was talking about in in that hypothetical novel. So, yeah, that's what. It, yeah, that's... that is incredibly. Well, if you search wolf attack on Wikipedia, <laughs> <laughs> there is a listing. <laughs> Is there a Wikipedia picture of wolf attacks? Is that a category? How does that occur with such frequency? Yeah, when you make a Wikipedia page? It has, uh, you know, <laughs> not including the bibliography, uh, further reading references and external links. There's like six different chapters, each with their sub chapters. Oh my God. <laughs> All right, well. <laughs> There is, hold up, dude. There is a bit of interesting okay. information I can I can tell you. So Stop, dude. Okay. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. This is that's a ridiculous thing. So apparently uh, by the 1970s, there was like a very, there's a pro wolf lobby. Like wolves are just animals and their whole stance is there has never been a documented case of a healthy wild wolf attacking a human in North America. And that's basically what um, Maggie says to him, right? So this is like a slogan that they're trying to create a more positive image f- for wolves. However, there have been several non-fatal attacks there was, uh, I guess, a very unfortunate one that happened in April of 2000 against an attack on a six-year-old boy in Icy Bay, Alaska. So in Alaska, where they are now, uh, and, and that that seriously challenged the assumption uh, that healthy wild wolves were harmless. I'm reading this directly from Wikipedia, sorry. No, no, it's okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it, I think there has been sort of, um, I don't want to say it's a myth, but the idea that wolves don't attack humans is is sort of a lot perhaps a lobby for pro wolf activists. <laughs> what a what a hill to die on. Yeah. You're on the pro wolf group. <laughs> I mean like yeah, we we shouldn't like we shouldn't demonize wolves, but also we should have caution. Like wolves apparently can attack um can attack people. I don't know. I think yeah. Joel's overreacting, but I also really like in this scene, I think it's one of the funniest lines uh, that I've heard. It's whenever Maggie first goes out to to hunt. And Joel doesn't want to go with her. And she says something to the effect of, you know, what, what are you afraid of? Like, what, what's out there that you're afraid of? You're walking into those woods. You don't know what's out there. I have a gun. They don't know that. They see us walking around there. They, they think we're with the Sierra Club, and that's a stick. Who's they? I, I don't know. You wild animals, white supremacists, attack bugs. You're right, Fleischman. You stay here. I love that. He's, he just, like, gets more and more unbelievable. You know, wild animals is something you could be afraid of, but it's really funny to think that there's like a chapter of the Ku Klux Klan operating out in the <laughs> inactivic preserve and then attack bugs. Like that's, 
Just That's something just, he made up. Even just the sequence of those words is actually really interesting. It's hilarious. If you rearrange it, if you say attack bug second and white supremacist third, that's almost a rule of three situation. Yeah, like yeah, white yeah. supremacist is the punchline, but he's playing it for real. Like he's, yeah, he's, he's honestly genuinely scared that of that. That's not the punchline. Like he thinks white supremacist might be out there. Yeah. Also, why would he be that afraid of white supremacists though? Because he's, he's white. I don't know. Yeah, I see. Well, I see they wouldn't saying. attack him. That's part of the. <laughs> he's in the clear. They just make him uncomfortable, I guess. I don't know. I guess. <laughs> that was my favorite line of the episode, though. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. So we do learn a little bit more about Maggie and Joel through this episode. It's not lost on Joel that they are sleeping together in a tent. You know, they are, you know, intimately close. Oh, I think it's hilarious whenever they're setting up the tent. Uh, Joel equates it to, you know, to, to a bear, this would be like gift wrapping. You know, there's no protection from the elements. Well, we're protecting from one element, according yeah, to him. Yeah. If this protects us from one element, you know, I love the bickering back and forth. Yeah. And it culminates, well, I guess it doesn't culminate, but it leads to another dream sequence. Yeah. A little vignette of them being cavemen. And Maggie is a cave woman. Joel is a caveman. They have like a little baby and like a another yeah. offspring. I couldn't tell if it was a boy or a girl but a little older. Mm, yeah, uh, a child with them. And it looks like Maggie is the provider, like the one that hunts for meat in that relationship. Yeah, she's like, she wants food and all Joel can do is like basically a cave painting of a hamburger, you know, instead of actually hunt. He's like, I, just, I don't know how to hunt. How anachronistic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So at the end of this, you know, as this dream is sort of coming to an end, Maggie says to Joel, she doesn't care if she has food as long as she has uh, blank. She, do, she doesn't get there. What, do you, what is she insinuating, like, as, as long as she has Joel? That's how I read the scene, was that as long as we're together, then we can overcome anything, is the way I read it. What, uh, yeah, it was kind of, that was kind of a weird uh, button for the end of that scene for me. I, I didn't really understand maybe what they're getting at. But anyway, when, when Maggie wakes up, she's, uh, her lips are kissing Joel. And they kind of both wake up at the same time. And it's like, oh, it's a little cute, I guess. I don't know. Wait, was that actually real? Uh, the, the kiss? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think so. I think that was like how she woke up from her dream. And then, you know, they're both facing each other and they uh, turn away really fast. Really? Because the way I read it was that I, I, I did okay. think that it could be a real scene, but I also believed that it could be w uh, another dream within a dream. Oh, okay. I don't know. Yeah. Well, how does that... For me, if it was another dream within a dream, for it to actually um, be understood that way, they would have to wake up again. But I don't. I think it just cuts away from that scene. That's right? true. I don't think it's a dream just for me for that reason. The reason that I think that it could be a dream within a dream is because they never really talk about it. That kiss. Yeah. The entire rest and, of the episode. And whether or not it's a dream or not, it's like yeah. I mean, that's a cute moment that you know that that's what everyone's tuning in for, but it doesn't really have any weight throughout the rest of the episode, like before or after that, it's not really. Yeah. That's why I thought it was so odd. Yeah. It, it's a little bit of fan service, I think in, in the worst sense, because it's giving you what you want, but then it's just like, okay, you got it. Let's just finish. Let's let us finish our episode our way. You know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hope, I really hope that wasn't a reason why they did that. Uh, I mean, I think obviously it's obvious. The show is about uh, so far. It's been about Joel and Maggie's uh, romance and I think it'll continue rolling along. We'll see. So yeah, so sort of the resolution, you know, how do they get out of this uh this wilderness? Oh, yeah. Well, 
actually, I think this is where the caveman bit might actually come into effect. Okay. Because Maggie in the caveman bit hunts for the meat. She tries to provide for the family. She's approaching it from that manner, that perspective. And whenever we shift back to the present, Joel is able to solve the problem by approaching it from his own expertise, which is the medical expertise. So he performs on the plane as if it was a human subject. He treats it, the valves of the airplane, like a heart valve. Yeah. And he's able to solve it that way. So the caveman bit is trying to say like, oh, well, like you still have usefulness beyond like the standard traditionally masculine roles. Yeah. Like and he's found a way to uh, prove his worth. That isn't. Traditionally masculine, I guess. Yeah. And, and actually, I think it's kind of funny leading up to this, you know, Maggie has left their, I guess, encampment. And that's when Joel s- sort of starts to do his exploratory surgery. But leading up to this, Joel is very curious about the engine and kind of like an annoying little brother or something, you know, like he's tagging <laughs> around and Maggie is just like, Joel, like, you know, get Fleischman, get away. Like, you're going to screw something up. And <laughs> what is it? Uh, Joel says, it doesn't work, O'Connell. What exactly do you think I was going to do? Make it not work worse? <laughs> but yeah, I thought that was really great. But uh, as he says, the, the engine is, is actually not unlike the human heart. He uh, compares it to a pulmonary stenosis. And um, all jargon aside, I think it was essentially like a clog or something, right? Yeah, that's what it, we are led to believe, is that it was just some sort of like sludge or something just uh, within the mechanics and you just mm-hmm. simply remove it and it can properly function again. And it's actually funny when Maggie arrives because, you know, we've seen the episode. We know that Joel fixed it. But when Maggie shows up, Joel's solution is basically taking pieces out. Like there's this little, I guess, a uh, tube that he's removed and like a cap. And, like it's like, no, you don't need this anymore. Just like try to turn on the engine now. Um, <laughs> but it does work. The propeller starts spinning. It's a really cool shot. You know, you got the propeller spinning and Joel's like cheering. He runs off and starts dancing or jumping or whatever. Yeah, he starts like grappling onto the uh, little yeah the little holes beneath what, the wing. Yeah, what would you call that? Little support beams or something? Yeah, the support beams and he starts hanging off it like a monkey. <laughs> so is this the uh, final scene that we see with Joel and Maggie? No, no, no. It actually is. No, isn't there one where she congratulates him or is that in the deleted scenes? That's in the deleted scenes. This is actually how the Maggie-Joel plotline resolves itself. Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. It is. It's in the deleted scene. They're flying again. The engine is roaring, and Maggie comments that, it, in fact, the engine sounds better than it did before. And it's sort of a nice little scene where, um, you know, it, it's it's sort of played up as if Joel is fishing for a compliment, and Maggie's like, "Oh yeah, I bet you're proud of yourself." And then there's a pause, and she says, "Well, you should be," and they kind of share a smile. Yeah. So it is a nice little ending moment. I think uh, watching it again uh, just now, I think the performance was played well. Um, the actors kind of knew what they wanted the characters to be. I think the text is a little more lovey-dovey in that scene. You know, like I think that, I'm trying to think of why they might have cut it apart from like time reasons. I could see this scene as written trying to play out as more lovey-dovey and, and perhaps trying to build upon that little kiss that they had. Remember how we were saying that was sort of just like placed in there for no reason. This might've added a bit of a um, denouement that strengthened their love for each other. Um, however, I think the actors played it a little more, what do you call that? Closer to the... Close to the chest? Closer to the chest, you know, like kind of more guarded with their feelings, which I think is smart uh, choice by the actors, but probably narratively for this episode, it's um, not really needed. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. I actually was less focused on the second half of that deleted scene and was mm-hmm. focused on the first half. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Maggie was talking about how turbulence is created from two different atmospheric pressures meeting. Mm. And I thought that was just subtext between Whoa. saying that like Joel and Maggie are meeting together to create turbulence, but the turbulence in her words were, I think she said it was a positive, right? Yeah, I don't know if, if necessarily it's positive, but it's it's not something you should be afraid of. That's great subtext reading. I love that. Yeah, so I kind of wish they would have included that in the yeah. episode. See, I think I think it's um it's a well written scene, you know, for the whole episode to kind of close it off. But maybe they ran out of time, or maybe they, I don't know. I, I keep I, I like the way they performed it. I feel like it was maybe counterintuitive to how it was written, though. But I think overall. I don't know if I've convinced you to like it anymore, Charles, but it's it's not one of my favorite episodes so far. <laughs> well, there's neat little pockets yeah. that I enjoyed from it. I feel that the summation of its parts don't actually live up to the expectations they were going for. Like, I, I think there was a lot of good ideas, but maybe the execution wasn't so well. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there's definitely things to like here, though. I think we really um, had a lot of fun kind of diving into each part. And there's stuff there. There's all good stuff. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's always weird when uh, Joel isn't sort of like so much of a central figure. I do really love his plot line here. I thought they did more when when I watched it again this time. I thought there was more that happened out in the wilderness. But it kind of seems a bit repetitive because, you know, Maggie goes out to hunt twice. Just kind of hitting the same notes. Though there are some of the, the funniest jokes and lines in, in this uh, little subplot. Yeah. I, I like that they're out and about, though. That I will give them yeah. credit for. Because they're always within the town of Sicily. This time, I was excited when I saw that initially. I was like, oh, sweet. Like, this episode's going to have them featured outside. In the wilderness. It's going to be great to watch. Yeah, there's like a soundbite early on where Maggie is kind of uh, making fun of Joel. Fleshman, this urban act of yours doesn't play in the wilderness. So if you have any interest in survival, you're going to have to drop the witty banter and hand me the damn pole. And that's like that soundbite would have been like in the trailer for Northern Exposure, you know? Oh, yeah. I'm surprised that he hasn't been stuck out in the wilderness like this uh, until now in the third season, you know? Yeah. I can definitely see them using that line uh, for like a promo. Yeah. You know, whenever you're watching like television, they're like, coming up next is going to be Northern Exposure. And it shows like that line. It's (laughs) like, tune in to uh, see what happens next when they're out in the wilderness. (laughs) Here's a pet theory. This was like a a script that um, they had or a script idea they had kicking around in the first season and they never got to it. I don't know. It just feels like, you know, there's a lot of expository stuff in the beginning. I'm in in the middle of a sentence. I'm kind of reconsidering something you said recently uh, in one of our previous episodes this season how season three is kind of finding a whole new tone mm-hmm. or it's, it's kind of like stepping into something new. So I don't know, maybe they're um, starting back at the, at the beginning with something new. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it totally does. I think that is just 23 episodes. Yeah. 23. Yeah. With 23 episodes, I feel like they have to dig into the well a little bit, just mm-hmm. kind of get from the old recesses of their minds. So maybe that's where this episode comes from. But I like your pet theory that this could have been written for <laughs> season one as well. Yeah. So now I think it's time to introduce our guest. I don't know if we talked about this at the top of the podcast, but uh, that's sort of a, a feature of this podcast. We like to introduce the show to people who have never seen Northern Exposure before. So we get uh, sort of like an acquaintance or just an outsider, just a random stranger to watch the episode in question and uh, kind of give us their thoughts 
out of context, you know, just to see if the show can hold up on its own. Today we have uh, Hayden as our guest analyst. Hayden is an incredible actor. She's never seen the show before. Kind of a very sort of last minute addition, um, but... I, you know, she jumped on the opportunity and I'm excited for you to hear this, Charles. Yeah, I think this is the first time we've had an actor and or actress yeah. be the guest commentator, oh, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So maybe we'll get some, you know, get inside the actor's mind, inside the actor's studio and <laughs> see <laughs> what's, what's going on in there uh, and how that may pertain to the episode. All right, let's roll the clip. Hi there, Northern Overexposure friends. Thank you for sharing Northern Exposure with me in this lovely little delightful way. I love breaking down old television shows. <laughs> so let's uh, let's dig in. I, uh, I love the 90s feel coming in. I feel like I'm getting off of school back in sixth grade watching the Golden Girls, except we're in Alaska and there's less old women, which... Uh, is an interesting flip for me. So, never really watched stuff with the Alaskan people. I want to know about their lives more. I want to know about the moose that walks around the town while the jazzy harmonica music's playing. So I'm I'm in it from the get-go. I'm excited to see what's happening. And we jump in with O'Connell and Fleshman in the woods, which is is a fun duo here. We got a New York Jew, and we got a bad lady with a pixie cut. She knows how to fly a plane, except it crashes. And I think that what unfolds with them is is very fun humor with with some play on words. Love the uh, idea of of the animals visiting in the parlor with lemonade and them talking about taking the skin off of a rabbit or a squirrel, I think it was, and uh, like a jacket off of a baby, but with no zipper. I just, I enjoy the wood talk between people, like, you know, talks in the woods. What do you talk about when you're stranded with people? And they're so different, uh, so it's fun. And and they had the caveman dream sequence, which I was like, will they, won't they? Come on, why do we got to go throw the will they, won't they situation in here? I do want to know, though, they never discuss it later. So just like one of those awkward, we cuddled in the middle of the night moments and maybe we just don't talk about it again. I'm interested. I need the other episodes to find out. Their storyline ends with him fixing the plane, which I'm a little like, hey, hey, pump the brakes. I get it. He's a heart surgeon, but she is a, like a professional flight person. How did she not fix her own plane, you know? Um, but, you know, they make it out alive, which is good because I want to find out if they get married or not <laughs> and uh, have caveman babies and whatnot, eating iguana together in the cave. Then who else did we meet? Oh, oh, Cindy and Shelly. Cindy and Shelly, why are you fighting over the worst female stereotype there is out there? It's like the goal is to be thin and drive men crazy. Like, that is what they're fighting over. Like, Shelly's like, I used to be thin and drive men crazy, and now I'm thick and dating a 63-year-old man. And, like, what did Cindy look like before that, like, her her coming in now is, like, just making Shelly question her entire being? Was Cindy a gremlin and is now Cinderella? And it's like, what have I grown into? A thick woman dating a 63-year-old man? And, like, clue in, Shelly, you are not thick. You are not. I know we all cried and hugged together about you being perfect and it not being easy. So, you know, calm down, Shelly. And while you're at it, get a hobby. Get a hobby that defines you better than this relationship. 
But, um, you know, she does take lead a little bit in the end when she's talking to her. I don't know his name. I just know that he was 63 years old because that was mentioned more than his name. But, um, but she's going to make him young instead of him making her old. So it's like, you know, you have what you have, and then it, it's what you do with it and what you put out into the world that defines you, not, not what you have. So that's, that's fun. That's that's sort of a, you know, we're working towards it. We're still in the 90s, but we're working towards it. And let's see. Oh, uh, final notes. Cindy, divorce Wayne. If a man does not show up for a previous divorce, like if you had to hunt down his ex-wife and finalize the divorce, Cindy, you're going to be doing a lot of work in this marriage. And I want you to know it's going to take away from your hair career. So, so leave Wayne. Where's Wayne? Leave him wherever he is because we didn't see him. Um, go ahead and, and follow your dreams. You know, be a hairdresser. Cindy, I'm rooting for you. I'm rooting for Cindy. And that's where I leave you guys off. Thank you all um, for showing me this show. And what a fun, delightful way to, uh, to, to share that with me. Um, I hope it's not too long. I mean, I'm sure you can get in here and cut it. I don't know if you can. I hope you can because I'm, I'm ruining it now at the end here. But uh, have a blessed Monday. And uh, thanks for sharing with me. All right. That was Hayden with her take on the episode. And I got to say, first of all, I didn't know she was doing a bit. Yeah, I think I really liked this analysis because of the performative nature. You know, I mean, obviously, Hayden had a lot to touch on and a lot of points to bring up, but it was uh, just entertaining to listen to throughout, you know? <laughs> no, definitely. At first, I didn't realize. Uh, that the way, bit, like I, yeah, the voice that <laughs> picked up. I thought that in was the a real voice. I was like, what? Wait, hang on. Who did we get? Did we get like an AI she to come you. on board? <laughs> an AI. <laughs> but. Oh my Once gosh, Wait, wouldn't that be a great, sorry to kind of derail us, but we should get an AI to watch the episode. Oh gosh, yeah, <laughs> like one of those, yes, absolutely. We'll, we'll have to figure out how that works. I don't really know anything about We're computers. We're going to get an AI to watch like all episodes of Northern <laughs> Exposure and then it's going to write a script for Northern Exposure. <laughs> that would be a good uh, season recap, uh, retrospective. Uh, oh my God, that's okay. a great idea. Let, let's, all right, well, know, hang let's on. save let's, this. Let's save let, this let, idea. Let's table this idea. Let's <laughs> get back into it. Aiden, love your uh, love your commentary. And once I got into the realization of what you're doing, I was totally on board. I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> I got to say, I think you got a really good slogan. I thought she uh-huh. hit the hammer on the nail with this particular phrase. And it was when she said, we're in the 90s, but it's working. Like, we're working towards it. <laughs> I got to say, that's a great yeah. catchphrase for this series. It really is, you know, because the show is you know, a lot of people view it as having been quite progressive for the time. You look at, you look back at it today, you know, it's not that impressive, but if you put yourself in the context of the nineties, we're working towards something, you know, we're cooking, I guess. (laughs) I thought it was great. Uh, sort of in the beginning of her analysis, she was, uh, talking about the feeling of, you know, I feel like I'm getting off school about to watch an episode of Northern Exposure. Imagine if we were, you know, mature enough at the time, getting off school, get home. I guess Northern Exposure was like a primetime thing. So you would get home and have to do all your homework first, and then you get to watch Northern Exposure on Monday night. Oh, man, those were the days. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, can you imagine if you were the parent of a child though, and like your child came home and like, you advanced. did all some work? It's like, hey, like, what are you doing, like, son? It's like I'm, I'm here to like watch Northern Exposure, mom and dad. Like you're like ten years old. This episode, <laughs> like, wait, like War and Peace. I'm just trying to think of like the most um, out there episodes for a ten year old. Yeah. <laughs> that a ten year a ten year old could never grasp, I guess. I did like that. Yeah, like a, like you said, <laughs> that nostalgic feel about watching a television show that was from the nineties and you're watching it in two thousand nineteen eyes. All about that. I, I like what she said about pumping the brakes for Joel Fleshman, mm-hmm. as she calls Fleshman, him. Yeah, saying that you know she's a flight person. She knows what she's about. And oh. I gotta say, yeah, Joel's uh, doing a little plane splaining. <laughs> Yeah, he's like somehow telling her, yeah, I mean, he's not like trying to tell her how to do it, but he's the one who solves the problem somehow when Maggie's been working. On, she, I think, I don't know if it's established in this episode, but she built that plane like that's her plane. Uh, so, yeah, kind of a, a little strange that uh, Joel can solve the problem. It's a fun uh, conclusion. It's a, it's a cool route for the episode to take, I guess. But uh, Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that if I was reading between the lines correctly i think she's all about that hate for that will they won't they what's that mean like that uh joel and maggie relationship of will they won't they Mm -hmm. it seems like she had a lot of disdain for that and as a newcomer Mm. for the series for her she was already picking up on that and she was like i don't i don't like where this is going i thought that was really interesting for somebody that was coming into the series fresh and already not liking that. Well, I think we talked about it in this episode of the podcast, how that seemed like just a weird fan service element that they added in. And even an outsider can tell that the way it was handled was pretty, like they just kind of threw it out there, you know? It seems sort of just sort of like last minute tossed in there, you know? It didn't really resolve in any great way. I guess we talked about the deleted scene, which Hayden hadn't watched, but I mean, no one saw that uh, deleted scene whenever it aired. Yeah, that's true. You're right. I think if she would have saw that, she would have maybe come around to it. Or just seen what what they were trying to do with it, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But still. Yeah, but... You know, I'm on her side. Uh, even, even I've seen all the episodes, and I'm like, nah, I'm I'm against this. Will they? Won't they? Come on, just you know, just finish it out. I don't know. Sometimes it's more compelling than others. I think I think the will they won't they factor in this episode um, seems like a last minute uh, afterthought or something. Like it wasn't really baked in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Hayden also mentions uh, sort of like the camping, talking in the woods. This is the camping episode, you know, and this is something we didn't really touch on in our uh, episode before this, but the the sort of campfire discussions that happen. Maggie mentions that she has always wanted to be a baker or she she used to have aspirations to be a baker. Do you remember this? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's really interesting now that you bring that up. There is a very isolationist feel where it's just the two of them Mm-hmm. against well not against the world but just alone yeah. in the world and i guess you're just more privy to your inner thoughts when you're with the other individual and you're more willing to share and there's something about like sitting around a campfire that opens you up you know it's a it's about storytelling and conversation when you're alone together i guess joel mentions he he wanted to be the center fielder for the yankees but that was before steinbrenner i guess that's what he that's a direct quote i have no idea what any of that means i guess <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to remember what Steinbrenner meant. Yeah, I think he was like a player or or like a coach or maybe the manager of the team. Oh, that's, oh yeah. okay. Got it. Yeah, no, that just threw me for a loop for a second. I totally forgot about that. 
Hayden mentions, uh, you know, Shelly needs to get a hobby. I like that that thought. <laughs> but uh, what can you imagine what uh, what Shelly's hobby may be? I was trying to think, uh, what could her hobby be? Huh. Hmm. So we see, you know, she's a she kind of has an unhealthy relationship with television in uh, one of those episodes, and what is that season season two premiere? Hmm. You're right. I would say. I don't know what type of like particular hobby that you would like, but I think the hobbies that you would greatly enjoy are the ones that you can really identify with because it seems like the things that she latches on to are things that you can really place your entire being into and they define you to something mm-hmm. uh, like television. If you're, well, I guess in her case, she was a fan of all television shows. She was just yeah. intrigued with the concept of television, but ordinarily most of the time you watch like a certain television show and you become a huge fan of it and Mm. it becomes kind of like a part of your identity where you're like oh i'm like john smith and i really like this television show (laughs) and that becomes a part of who you are for shelly's case that seems like she would be an individual that would fall into that camp so whatever her hobby is or would be i think it would be one of those types of hobbies where you greatly put your whole being into it. Yeah, I think the easy answer for that, the obvious answer would be something like uh, dancing or like, you know, something associated with pop music or movies and TV. But I I agree with you. I think there is this part of Shelly that sees through something a little deeper. I don't know where I'm pulling this from, but I think there's more to Shelly than sort of the surface level. She's sort of the butt of a lot of jokes being um, sort of the youngest person, almost... uh, amateur or immature, I guess. But no, there, there's some wisdom to her. I think, um, what is it? Yeah. Uh, Chris says Shelly may, uh, may have an old soul. She may be older than Holling. You know, there's parts of her that uh, contain some, some wisdom in there. Mm, you're right. I also really like what Hayden is saying about what you put out into the world. And I'm all on board with that mindset. But Again, I'm beating a dead horse. I'm not for that mindset when it's for (laughs) Shelly and Holling's relationship, which was, I think, was what she was referring to when using that uh, quote. But let's take that quote by itself rather than with the whole relationship. No, yeah, I think what what she was saying was sort of like referring to the age. It's not about how old you are, but how old you act or how, like, sort of your inner spirit and, you know, even though you're old, what is it? Shelly's like, I'm going to make you young. Or together, their love sort of exists outside of uh, these qualities, whether they're beautiful I was beautiful about to cut you off and be old. like, outside the law. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is there, they're, they're, um, no, no, their they're union totally. is not no. illegal. It's not illegal. It's, it's not. It's, uh, maybe it's, it's uh, towing the line. Is that the expression? Yes. <laughs> Um, it's getting close, but, uh, no, I think, you know, if there's any reason to believe in their love, this episode is, is the one that tries to sell you on that the hardest, perhaps, um, you know, whatever we could, we're going to talk about this until the end of the series. I'm sure. Yeah. We're going to get to the finale of the episode when they finally get married. You know, we're like skip from season one, that episode where they try to get married to actually get married in that episode. I'm, I'm projecting what I think the final episode is going to be. Um, and we're still going to be talking about it. By the end of this podcast, Charles is going to be married to a 63 year old woman. (laughs) Yeah. It's a reverse situation. Um, I found a very, very old woman in Alaska to marry. (laughs) Well, well, yeah, uh, that was Hayden. That was great 
commentary. I, th- I think it's always fun to sort of dive in and focus on what other people can find that we're not really, you know, looking at, you know? Yeah, no, it was a treat to listen to. Next episode is called Animals Are Us. Any sort of uh, predictions like there? like a play on Toys R Us? I think so, yeah, because it's got the R straight in there. So, oh. uh, yeah, honestly. Does Joel get a pet? Hmm. Dog Watch 2019. Maybe it's, he's finally going to take in, take in one of the street dogs. Uh, okay, well, I think that's enough theorizing. We, we can sign off now. Charles, thank you for podcasting with me. I will see you next week. Yeah, I'll see you next week, man. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Hayden for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And of course, thanks for listening.